Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? Oh, it's going great today. I'm feeling really good about this conversation that's coming up. I hope everybody out there is doing well. And I'm feeling really good about your mood because you came into this intro firing on all cylinders. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm firing on all, on all cylinders, as you as you said. <laughs> and I'm really excited to introduce this conversation we had with this wonderful author. Her name is Erica Engelhopt, and she wrote a book called Gory Details, which is gross in all the best ways. Right. We touch on that benign masochism that really drives the point home if you're going to try to describe this book to somebody. It's about all of those things that you are grossed out about. You know it's not going to harm you, but really what stands out about this book and Erica's work is that she is directly relating it in some places to how crime scenes can be misinterpreted or contaminated, how individuals can be falsely accused when touch DNA just happens to be discovered on somebody's fingernails and they had nothing to do with the crime, or how a fly could poop on the wall and that looks like blood spatter sort of compromises these crime scenes and we have a lot of good laughs in this conversation and i think people are going to find it interesting a little gross and eye-opening i hope so and erica also writes as part of the gory details blog from national geographic so she's a uh, prolific writer as well as uh, as now an author and she has two science degrees so you know she knows what she's talking about. And we just wanted to give a quick shout out. We had mentioned towards the end of the episode, she really enjoyed, and you and I, Tim, really enjoyed the audiobook version of this. And the narrator on that audiobook is the talented Mary Weiss. And also, if you get the hardcover of Gory Details, it has the glow-in-the-dark images, and the illustrator is the very talented artist, Bryony Morrow-Cribs. Yeah, it is a great book and funny, too. And this conversation with Erica is great. I have a feeling all of our listeners will love it. But if you want to hear it ad-free, you got to subscribe to Crawl Space Premium. And you can now do that from your Apple Podcasts app. Or if you're not an Apple user, you can go to Crawl crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for Crawlspace Premium there. You get every episode ad-free, you get early releases, and our weekly bonus show, which is fantastic. And speaking of benign masochism, Tim, some people have described our social media as benign masochism. If one wanted to experience this benign masochism, where would they go? They can follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Erica Engelhopt. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome, author Erica Engelhopt. How are you today? Fantastic. How are you guys doing? We're doing really well. I don't know where to begin with you because 
the subject matters that you cover are of this really amazing, not morbid curiosity, but it arouses curiosity. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I hope it is kind of a lighter side. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I like to write about is pretty gross and somewhat morbid. This is the the book that we're talking about, Gory Details. It does have a glow-in-the-dark cover, so if you have not experienced that yet, I greatly recommend it. Oh, no. That's a fun fun weekend activity for you. That's amazing. I I think both Tim and I listened to the audio book. Definitely going to have to go to our local bookseller and pick up the physical copy for the glow in the dark cover. That's awesome. Absolutely. What a nice touch. Yeah, it is a great book. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and about your journey, how this book came to be? I'm a science journalist. I was living in DC for the origins of this book. I'm uh, in DC again now. I started off uh, doing a blog. So I was a science writer and editor working at Science News Magazine. And I started off with the opportunity to do blogs for our website. And all it took really was a glance at my bookshelf. And all of the uh, science books that I love to read were, you know, things by Mary Roach, like Bonk and Stiff, and lots of books about forensic science, books with titles like Slime or... (laughs) or blood work. So it was pretty easy for me to come up with, you know, the idea for doing a blog about kind of the dark side of science or the gross side of science. From there, it just kind of took off, went to work for National Geographic and started doing the blog on their website. And at some point it was like, wow, I've got so much interesting stuff. Maybe this should actually become a book. So that's exactly what we did. I got to do more reporting, uh, you know, used some of the things that I had blogged about and went out and did additional reporting and came up with new stories and put it all together around different themes like taboos and morbid curiosity. There you go. It became gory details. Yeah, you do hit on all of these really cool topics that are taboo. And then you even discuss like the origins and the stigma that the word taboo has nowadays. I want to back up just a little bit. You said you work for National Geographic. What's it like to work for National Geographic? I don't know if I've ever met somebody who has. (laughs) Well, it is. I do get a lot of uh, young people asking me about it and saying that that's their dream job to work at National Geographic. You know, I mean, the truth is that when you're an editor at National Geographic, you're not the adventurer going around the world to all of the cool places. (laughs) You're sitting in the office and working on on stories and the website. Nothing is ever quite as glamorous as one might imagine, but that isn't to say that it doesn't have its moments. It's been fantastic working for them. I'm working on another book for National Geographic Books now that is allowing me to do more travel around the world. It's a pleasure and so many smart, interesting, and fun-loving people. It's great. So, Erica, how can a true crime aficionado like ourselves or our listeners use your book to understand crime? If you are interested in true crime these days, a lot of it does come down to forensic science. And we're seeing that with all of the cases that are going on that are in the public eye right now. Uh, People are really looking for what's the physical evidence and where does it lead us and what does it tell us about who committed these crimes? That's something that I've, of course, been very fascinated by, tried to include a lot in my book. And some of the things that I like to include are the things that you aren't necessarily going to hear about everywhere else. Kind of the quirky little weird corners of forensic science. Everyone has kind of heard a lot about DNA at this point, but I kind of try to talk about things you might not expect to hear about in the field of (laughs) forensic science and DNA. For example, like the idea that blowflies, insects at a crime scene could be 
munching on human blood or other bodily fluids, carrying them around, pooping them out, and totally confusing matters. You know, some of these things I hope are of interest to people and might kind of spark questions that you wouldn't have thought about otherwise as you're listening to true crime podcasts or enjoying that genre. And there's some documented track record of that happening, right? Where a fly took blood and, and actually incriminated someone. What I think you're thinking of is actually a similar case that was very interesting where someone was in jail for some months, uh, a man named Lucas Anderson. This was back in 2013. He could have been convicted potentially on DNA evidence. What they call touch DNA or transfer DNA. And I think you're starting to hear more about this now in the news. And it's a similar concept to the, you know, flies moving DNA around. You can imagine how they do that because they land on a body or on some kind of body fluid and move it around. But a lot of people don't realize that even just touching someone, touching an object, leaves behind some DNA, a few skin cells, basically. That can be picked up by another person and transferred to another object. In the case of Lucas Anderson, a young man, he was actually homeless and was a severe alcoholic. And his DNA was found on the fingernail clippings of a murder victim. It looked really bad, right? He didn't even really know what had happened because he had been passed out drunk that day. It turned out that actually he was in the hospital at the time of the crime. The same EMTs who had taken Lucas Anderson to the hospital and touched him and probably put things like oxygen sensors on his fingers and so forth, had then gone to the crime scene and touched the body of this victim. So that probably explains how Lucas Anderson's DNA got onto this murder victim without him ever having been anywhere in the vicinity. And we're getting down to the point now with DNA technology where we can detect DNA in such tiny amounts from just a couple of skin cells or just a little scrap of DNA and fly poop that you have to start thinking about these real possibilities. So Lucas Anderson is one case where we know someone actually was arrested for a crime. With flies, it hasn't come to light whether anyone has actually been arrested erroneously based on that kind of data. But I certainly think that defense attorneys and others will start looking at that more closely and looking at evidence in a different way when you do have something like blood spatter evidence at a crime scene, for instance, because fly poop, <laughs> flies that have been eating blood or body fluids, fly poop on a wall, forensic scientists have told me it's essentially indistinguishable from blood spatter. You cannot tell the difference visually. I watched a presentation where scientists were actually resorting to scanning electron micros microscopy to tell the, the difference whether something was blood spatter or fly poop. That certainly raises the possibility that it could happen. Said so many really amazing things right there. I just had a question about Lucas Anderson. When did his case take place and how long was he in prison and he was exonerated? He was exonerated. He was arrested. I believe he was in jail for about four months, and it did not get to the point of going to trial before he was exonerated. It was very lucky in his case that, you know, law enforcement and people started to put together this story. I mean, it, it was basically luck that he had a rock solid alibi that he was in the hospital and they had good records for when he had been picked up by EMTs and admitted to the hospital and so forth. If he hadn't had that rock solid alibi, they might you know, no one might have gone the extra mile of figuring out this whole weird chain of events that people don't normally look for. What year was this? This was about 2013. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. it's terrifying, honestly. So, I mean, it's probably, <laughs> there have probably been more cases since then, yeah. frankly, that we just don't know about. But that was one that really brought it to the to public attention. It's got to be so challenging as a member of the defense team to try to explain what sounds like a comical defense technique. It sounds crazy. And I mean, it, it reminds me of, you know, people talk about the Twinkie defense, you know, the, t- the Twinkie, I ate too many Twinkies and it made me crazy. You know, you can easily imagine people making fun of this in the same way, like, oh, it's the fly poop defense, you know. It is comical, but it is also something that you really have to think about. And it's not just blood, even. Um, if you really want to get gory, I spoke to a scientist in Australia who did some really fascinating experiments with blowflies, which are often the first flies to show up at a crime scene. She was looking at what at a crime scene might flies gravitate toward? What would they eat first? And you want to know this because you want to know whether there's a possibility of them moving bodily fluids around, things like that. And so she did this really hilarious kind of set of experiments, but really important where she offered flies all different bodily fluids as well as regular foods. Um, so, you know, blood, semen, saliva, all these kinds of things. It actually turned out that what the flies liked best was semen. And so <laughs> this raises the you know the question of whether whether flies could potentially move the DNA in semen, because semen is very rich in DNA, could potentially move DNA around from place to place by consuming semen and then, you know, going somewhere else and pooping. She said, you know, we don't know whether this has ever happened in any kind of legal case, but it certainly has been demonstrated that it's possible. Just something to think about. Imagine a situation where after a sexual encounter, you know, a fly could land and consume these bodily fluids and move it someplace else. You are leaving your DNA around in different places all the time in ways that you don't even think about. When I was listening to that part of the book, I was hoping defense attorneys were not listening. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, I also think they should know about that. So it's very conflicting. It is. And it, it makes things confusing, right? Because you see cases that are in the news today, take like the Moscow, Idaho case. I think that one of the pieces of evidence they have is DNA from a knife sheet that was at the scene of the crime. That would be essentially touch DNA. That would be DNA left probably not from blood or you know maybe it is I don't know but it could very well be DNA just left from a few skin cells from someone having touched that depending on the circumstances that can be very strong evidence but you also have to consider and you have to be prepared for the fact that a defense team can argue that there can be other ways for one person's DNA to end up on an object that they've never handled. Have you ever been called in to be like an expert witness? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't qualify as a forensic science expert because those people would have to have uh, many years of scientific training specifically in that. And I do have two master's degrees in science, but they're not in forensic science, actually. They're biology and environmental science. So I wouldn't qualify to be an expert. I am just someone who's very curious and has read a lot and who loves to dive into the to the scientific literature on these kinds of weird questions. You mentioned blowflies. When you look it up, they just look like regular flies, right? Yeah, pretty much. Some of them are actually quite pretty. A lot of people will call them bottle flies. You know, some of them are big and kind of iridescent green or blue. They're really kind of, they're kind of pretty. <laughs> and they're pretty common too. 
and they're pretty common. They're pretty much everywhere. There are many species of, of, of blowflies, but they're found all over the world. A story that I've heard commonly is that they were involved in what's thought to be kind of the first example of using forensic science uh, in a legal setting, which was from centuries ago in China, where someone had been killed in a field with a working blade. So this very smart man had everyone lay out their, uh, I think they call them scythes, these big knives, lay the scythes out on the ground and see which one the blowfly goes to first. Because even if you've wiped the blade clean, there's still going to be enough trace amounts of blood that a blowfly will know that it's there. It's the blowfly test. <laughs> I love that. The one comforting thing I feel like is that most cases that use DNA, there's probably more than what a blowfly would carry. Right. So that's the one thing that I'm breathing deeper about. Yeah, you hope so. But there, you know, there certainly are, are cases where someone tries to make a big deal out of a very small amount of DNA. I don't know if you guys have been following obsessively the Alec Murdoch or Alex Murdoch case like I have. It's hard to avoid it. It's everywhere. There was some discussion that Maggie Murdoch had a very small amount of DNA from an unknown male under her fingernails uh, when they tested her. And I would just say, with today's technology, you really have to take that with a huge grain of salt. It really, I, I probably have unknown males DNA under my fingernails right now. And it doesn't mean I've been fooling around, <laughs> you know, it's just very, very easy to pick up small amounts of other people's DNA just by touching surfaces. Yeah, you, you really have to be very cautious in interpreting that kind of evidence. That's why I don't shake hands anymore. <laughs> right. Now I have to be worried that I'm going to be falsely accused of a crime. Maybe. Right. Great. Because I wanted to be polite. Yeah, exactly. It's. I mean, it, the, the reality is you almost can't avoid it. I mean, you are, like I said, you're leaving your DNA in so many places all the time without even realizing it. And then other people are then taking it from there and carrying it to who knows where else. Yeah. Stay sexy and don't get wrongfully convicted, Lance. Right. <laughs> we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. You wrote a lot about animals in your book. One of the more fascinating parts was about pets eating their owners. Can you tell us about this? Because this was in myth territory before uh, I heard this part of your book. It occurred to me because someone asked me if this was an urban myth or an urban legend that sometimes pets will eat their owners after they've died. Be someone who dies in their home alone and uh, is not discovered for some days. You know, it kind of makes sense that uh, a hungry pet might end up consuming some of that that person. What I found surprised me when I started looking into this. I started looking in the forensic science literature where forensic scientists and medical examiners had written about case, real cases that they had seen. I was surprised. It uh, It is not always the case that you have a hungry pet. You could just have a freaked out pet. <laughs> um, and dogs in particular, some of them will, will freak out when they're when their owner won't respond to licking or nudging or, you know, they might start kind of lightly biting and then maybe, you know, licking at blood and then that turns to biting and then eating. So it's kind of sad and gross to think about. But, you know, what I said was I really kind of have to give a dog a pass on that one because they're really not doing it out of malice. Um, you know, some of the 
the cases that medical examiners reported, you know, that the dogs were by all descriptions, very good natured dogs that were very well bonded to their owners. So I think that they were just upset and freaked out, not, you know, waiting for you to drop dead so they can eat you. (laughs) It breaks your heart when you hear that, because you can totally understand why this animal that was loyal to you and you were loyal to it and you had this relationship would do something like that. And you just it like breaks your heart to think that an animal would go that, that far just in sheer panic, not knowing what to do. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, there, and there were some, you know, really striking cases. Now there are also cases where dogs, you know, can get locked up somewhere and they actually are hungry and they can essentially consume an entire body. And and I, I did see some reports of cases like that where there was essentially nothing left but pieces of bone. But that's not that common. But I will say, it's not just dogs. Cats sometimes as well. Pretty much any pet that can eat you might eat you. <laughs> it's sort of what it comes down to. So there were cases of uh, what they call postmortem scavenging by hamsters birds, you name it. Sheer panic on the part of dogs, but sheer evil on the part of cats. <laughs> now, <laughs> I'm not going to say <laughs> My, I think actually I have a cat that is, um, is very sweet and wakes me up every morning, you know, with her face right up in my face, sniffing me and everything. I could easily imagine her freaking out if I didn't wake up and respond to her and and eventually starting to nibble me. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that the cats are <laughs> are pure evil. <laughs> I think that's that's probably going too far. <laughs> but I will say, you know, I, I do understand that, you know, we do think of dogs as man's best friend. And so maybe it seems a little more surprising to some people that yes, they will eat you if you die. <laughs> Speaking of eating humans, is it weird? That when I walk onto a plane, the first thing I do is take inventory of people. If the plane crashes, who am I going to eat first? Yeah. Is that odd? <laughs> yes. I, yes. Yes. But, you know, if you're going to be weird and think about that, then, you know, think logically about it. Think scientifically about it. And one thing you can learn from my book is human cannibalism does go back. You know, we don't know how far, but there certainly is evidence of it going back very far into human history. And someone did a study once looking at, okay, well, if uh, humans are going to eat each other, how nutrition, you know, how nutritious are we as humans, actually? And compared to a lot of other, you know, big game animals, we're actually not that nutritious. But if you're going to judge who's going to get eaten first, the advice that I was seeing in terms of like calorie content and so forth was you want the large, you, you want to eat the large muscles first. So like the thighs. So those athletic people with the, you know, muscular thighs, uh, <laughs> they might want to watch out. <laughs> I just pictured sitting in my seat on the plane and just looking at everyone's thighs as they were walking past <laughs> They're just like T-bones like to you as you're walking down the aisle to your seat. <laughs> yeah, like floating steaks. I don't condone, you know... Um, cannibalism? I don't condone cannibalism, but I'm just saying, you know, if desperate times arise, at least now you know. <laughs> Desperate's such a loose term. I mean, define desperate. Like, they're not giving me my little bag of peanuts or pretzels. Is, is that desperate? Yes. Desperate, yes. Yeah, you, you'll have to judge for yourself. <laughs> What about animals who kill their own species? Again, as a true crime 
aficionado, I just would have assumed humans killing humans, that's the most common species on same species uh, kind of murder, but that, that wasn't the case. Not necessarily, no. Yeah, as far as um, the most murderous mammals, those who kill their own kind, not predation where you're a lion is hunting, you know, killing a wildebeest or whatever and eating it. What we would consider as humans to be murder where you're killing a member of your own species. The most murderous mammal was actually meerkats. Vicious. <laughs> Vicious. <laughs> the, the meerkats. Super cute, but they kill their own kind. And it's largely the females that will kill each other. They have a kind of a matriarchal social system and only the top female gets to reproduce. And so if a lower tier female has babies, then that top meerkat may come in and wipe them out. So they have, yeah, huge meerkat battles where they really will kill each other pretty prolifically. Humans were sort of like middle of the road, you know, as far as primates go, we're sort of typically murderous primates. <laughs> yeah, surprising. Uh, I, I will say, though, that we have probably developed the most creative ways of killing each other and have probably the shakiest motives <laughs> in many cases. <laughs> for killing each other. So I think our big brains make us special in being particularly awful to each other, but don't necessarily make us kill each other more frequently than a lot of other species do. Now, you dug into this other mystery that kind of bordered on myth for a while to me, too. This mystery of feet appearing on beaches in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, can you tell us about this? This fascinated me from the moment I heard about it. So it started, you know, really about 2011, I think, is when it started really picking up. People were noticing finding feet washing ashore on beaches, just feet, not the whole body, not the head, just feet. Usually it would be a disembodied foot wearing a sneaker or hiking shoe, that type of a shoe. This, of course, freaked people out. This was happening in what's called the Salish Sea area, which if you picture between Vancouver and the Seattle area, you've got this big inland sea. It's a very complex waterway. You know, it's just kind of a twisty area with lots of different beaches and islands. And feet were coming ashore and people started thinking, oh my gosh, there's a serial killer who's dismembering people and, you know, their feet are washing up. Or there's aliens or there's, you know, or there's migrants that died in a, in a terrible accident at sea and now their bodies are washing ashore. People had all kinds of theories about what could be going on. What ended up being the case was a lot simpler, which is that essentially in that area, when a body ends up in the water for whatever reason, whether it is just an accident or could be a murder, could be anything. But if someone ends up dead in the water, in most cases, their body could sink and then it can get carried in different places. Once it has sunk, it's likely to be scavenged upon. And in that part of the world, you've got a lot of um, scavengers like crabs, lobster, I compared it to the, you know, the red lobster buffet, it's down there, you know, in reverse, consuming these, a body and the part of the body that is most likely to become detached is actually the foot. Because when you think about, you know, your head is attached with vertebrae, and you know, there's kind of some pretty sturdy bony connections there. Um, but your feet are mostly just held on by, you know, ligaments, tendons, soft tissue. So once uh, scavengers have gotten 
to that soft tissue, then the foot comes off. And if you are wearing a modern day sneaker, they have these lightweight foams that will tend to make them float. It's really just kind of a perfect storm scenario where you've got all of these factors that go together to have you end up with a foot in a sneaker that's now floating in the water. The Sailor Sea has the perfect storm of characteristics for trapping those feet because you've got winds that blow from west to east. So blowing things into the bay, into the inland sea, instead of out into the ocean. And then a very complex geography once something is inside there that will tend to trap it somewhere. So that's why you know, why there? <laughs> why don't you hear stories about this in a lot of other places? They happen to have this, you know, particular set of circumstances. Any body that does end up in the water, a foot is more likely <laughs> to end up washing up on a beach there. For example, if you were in Hawaii and you were on the leeward side of an island and the wind is carrying things out away from the island, you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't see that happening. But you have seen some, uh, there have been some cases of feet washing up in Florida. I remember there was a case not too long ago, a few years ago, and they did eventually figure out whose foot that was. But long story short, with the feet in Sailor Sea, they've done DNA analysis, trying to match them to miss missing people, things like that. None of the cases that they have been able to match so far appeared to be homicides. Everything seemed to be either like a boating accident, a suicide. There were explanations for how the, the, the body ended up in the water. No mass murder, cutting off feet, which so is boring. Which is yeah. sad that we're disappointed <laughs> that there's not a yes. foot hating serial killer, but that's yeah, that's where we are. <laughs> we have to cancel our uh, our new uh, upcoming podcast now apparently. Thanks, Erica. <laughs> the yeah. foot slayer. <laughs> the foot slayer would have been a really catchy name so sorry <laughs> that is a good sorry example. netflix there's not going to be a special <laughs> well, i'll register the domain right now we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor and a thank you to our sponsors back to the program what about this other phenomenon that that you mentioned and while i listened to this i think i was driving so i didn't write down the name but Bodies, wounds would bleed in a killer's presence? Cruentation. This was an idea that persisted through the Middle Ages, but really right up into the 1800s, even, you know, early American history. You saw cases where people believed in this idea of cru called cruentation, where a dead body would bleed in order to reveal its killer. Killer came <laughs> close the body would start to bleed. And that's how you knew that this was the killer. I love that. It's pretty good. I mean, why not? Because it would be weird. Let's say you saw some actual, you know, body fluid leak out of a body. That can happen, you know, during the decay process. You could have fluids that drip out of, you know, nose or mouth, something like that. And if that happened right when someone walked up to a body, that would be super creepy and... <laughs> <laughs> you might think it was a sign of something. People had interpreted these things as signs or symbols, and it actually crazily made its way into the, the legal system sometimes <laughs> as evidence that, you know, there was this case in, in early U.S. history where they actually paraded a whole town of people past a body to see if the body would bleed when any of them walked past, and that would, that would reveal the killer, you know. So I, I think that we 
as humans, we rely on a lot on what we call this magical thinking, this idea that, you know, there's some cause and effect where maybe it is just a coincidence, but we want to believe that there's some power, some, whether it's a supernatural force or something that is causing, you know, these signs and symbols to be revealed to us. It's people really wanting <laughs> to solve a crime so badly. They interpret things in this, what seems now to be a totally crazy way. But I think at the time it was what they had, you know, they, that's, they didn't have DNA, so <laughs> they didn't, or DNA analysis. They had DNA in them, but they didn't know about it. <laughs> people work with what they have. <laughs> The one I really loved was there was a guy who worked really hard uh, trying to develop this technology called optograms, where he was trying to create like a, a photographic image of the last thing that an a person's eye saw before they died. The idea was that like your eye is like a camera. This was the early days of cameras. You know, if your eye is like a camera and it's recording images, then maybe you can almost develop it like film and see the, what the last thing was. And so he had some kind of staining technique that he would use and he developed these images and they, I mean, they looked like nothing. They were, you know, swirly, <laughs> swirly pattern things. But of course the human mind is fantastic in interpreting, you know, randomness and trying to impose a pattern on it. And so people would try to interpret these images and, and say, oh, I see a shape of this person or I, it looks like this person's face. I would love to have been in the room when this was all happening and they're developing, so to speak, the images and you're seeing yeah. the swirls and thinking like, what if I do see something here? I know. I know some little piece of me wishes that it had worked, you know, yes. like how cool would that be if it had really worked? You know, it's that kind of like magical thinking that, you know, we all have to some extent. We, you know, we we want to believe even when often when science tells us, OK, that's not going to work. I've seen people who still really strongly believe in uh, a form of dowsing for graves, for hidden graves and things like that. As a science thinker, I don't think I don't think that works. I've never gotten any kind of scientific explanation that was rational or made sense. But there certainly are people who swear by it and are completely convinced that it's scientifically accurate, that there's something, there's some sort of essence or radiation or something that the body gives off that they can pick up on. I don't know what that would be. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, <laughs> I will say, you know, that a lot of the things that we understand now, you, you can't really apply today's thinking to yesterday's science very well. You know, like I said, they were figuring out what DNA even was. Can't really fault people for, you know, trying to use the technology of the day. But I do fault people for trying to use yesterday's technology today. <laughs> When you said there are some people that still swear by dousing rods, I mean, do those people also have two science degrees like yourself? Oh, I mean, who knows? I mean, there is a guy who I think has a, a PhD or something like that, who has a whole method for finding bodies that involves just a little metal dome. It, it was more or less like dowsing, but instead of a stick, it was like a metal dome thing. Having a degree doesn't really make you always right. <laughs> There are quacky people out there who believe all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, I'm all for experiments. You know, if someone hits on one of these things and it really works, great. A lot of totally legitimate science was dismissed at first or, you know, people thought it was it was nuts. But I'm all for the scientific method is, <laughs> is my point. Like, do the experiments, show me the data. I don't want to just like hear a bunch of anecdotes about how, oh, I totally went to the cemetery and found a bunch of bodies. You know, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, duh. Really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah. Kind of a faith-based approach, I guess, huh? Yeah. And, you know, I'm not knocking anybody for having whatever faith they have. When it comes down to someone's guilt or innocence in a court of law, I think we need a scientific standard for that. I am always interested in seeing how forensic science is evolving and changing and what kind of experiments people are doing and the things that they're they're able to do. Sometimes it's just basic stuff. One thing that I wrote about years ago was there were scientists in Israel who were trying to be able to lift fingerprints from rocks, which is hard to do. Fingerprints don't essentially stick or, you know, appear on um, all kinds of objects, especially if they're porous like rocks. And they were interested in that because they have these issues with Palestinians throwing rocks. So, you know, regardless of what you think about Israeli-Palestinian conflicts, I thought it was interesting that they were motivated to do this particular, you know, these particular experiments, particular kind of science in order to address a particular question they had, politics of that aside, it's interesting just to think about, you know, the reasons why we develop these new technologies. There's always something new happening in forensic science. Uh, right now, I think a lot of the attention has been on the touch DNA, trace DNA, and things like genetic genealogy, which is another super fascinating area. But there's a lot of, you know, just these basic things. Can you get a fingerprint off of a rock? Or things that we kind of take for granted, like determining a time of death. There's a whole area of science that's starting to develop around what's called the necrobiome, which is all of the bacteria um, and microbes that are on our body and which begin to break us down when we die. There are scientists who are very interested in being able to use the pattern of decomposition and looking at the actual types of bacteria that are present and their abundance and be able to create a timeline, then use that timeline to say how long has this person been dead. It's a lot like the idea of using the stages of flies on a body. If you've watched Bones or any of those kinds of, of CSI type shows, you, you know they'll show forensic entomologists, insect experts who will look at maggots or you know the different life stages of flies, the eggs and so forth that are on a dead body. In principle, there's no reason why you can't do something similar with the bacteria that are growing on the body, just like the flies. It's so interesting. That might be one of the things that some people would say, oh, that sounds quacky to me. You know, maybe it won't work out. You know, Maybe it'll just be too variable and, and you won't be able to get clean enough data from it. So far, there's some actually some pretty promising signs in some of the experiments that have been done. It's just not easy research to do. You know, you have to have access to, to dead bodies. And so that's where places like the body farm, which there are several places called body farms, um, which are research sites that are studying the decomposition of human remains in a variety of settings including outdoor settings. I live most of the time in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville has what was the original, the first body farm in the U.S., which I've been lucky enough to visit and see some of the research that was going on there. It was really interesting. You have to have people willing to donate their remains when they die. It's it's a lot like donating your body to you know medical research, uh, except in this case, the, the research is going to be decomposition research. It's not something that everyone is up for donating to. For the people who do donate, it's a wonderful thing to do because there's really, there's no other way for researchers to do this kind of work and to figure out these kinds of techniques that may help us understand causes of death or time of death for, you know, generations of people in the future. Even though it sounds weird and gross, I think it's 
it's actually really important and cool. All of the things that you put yourself through in writing the blog and then the book, all the smells and and the, and the maggots, which do have a bad rap. If they weren't named maggot, like they probably would be more of a lovable type insect. On the surface, it's like a very fun topic to to kind of dive into and be grossed out by. But you also go a little deeper and you explore like the importance of it too, like with the body farms and with DNA and with how a crime scene can be compromised by a insect that you never would have thought. You doing that work is a form of that benign masochism that you bring up <laughs> yes, in the book that I didn't even know was a thing until it's like, oh, that's why yeah. I eat a spicy pepper. That's yes. why a skunk smells good to me and not to somebody else. Can you just explore that? Where does that come from in you? And yeah. uh, I, I just find that so fascinating that you're breaking down the barriers of like benign masochism. Benign masochism is one of those terms that, you know, again, I had never heard of until I started looking into the kinds of weird things that I research. A researcher named um, Paul Rosin at University of Pennsylvania, I think, coined that term. The idea is masochism is where you basically you enjoy pain uh, or you enjoy some kind of negative experience. But the benign part is you know you're not actually going to get hurt. Benign masochism is a feeling that explains why sometimes we like to smell gross things. Like I kind of like this <laughs> to smell a skunk too. I don't know. There's something about that smell that I kind of like. People will line up for hours to smell a corpse flower. Um, there are these giant flowers that really smell like a rotting corpse. They smell terrible. So why are people, you know, lining up, wanting to smell this thing, knowing they're going to be go, ooh, it's so bad. I hate it. It's gross. Well, it's that it's that sense of benign masochism. It's being able to do something, take your emotions for a ride, but know that you're safe doing it. Riding a roller coaster is very much the same kind of experience. You feel like you're going to die, <laughs> but you know that you won't. Um, you know that you're actually pretty safe. And so I think that explains a lot of why sometimes we like disgusting things. We like gross, scary movies. As humans, we are so contradictory <laughs> in our nature. And so benign masochism, yeah, it's just one of those things. I think we all experience it. You just don't necessarily recognize it until you hear the name for it. It's a, a little bit like schadenfreude. We've all probably experienced schadenfreude, uh, that feeling of taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune. But until you hear the name for it, you don't necessarily put your finger on what that feeling is. Well, Erica, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us here today. We really appreciate it. Where is the best place for listeners to get your book? Oh, sure. You can absolutely just go on Amazon. I like uh, bookshop.com. Any of your independent booksellers always uh, encourage people to shop their independent booksellers if they can and get hardcover if you want glowy in the dark version. There's also audiobook version and I love love the way that the narrator did it. I thought she made me sound smarter, so I'm all for that. <laughs> well, thank you, Erica. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad to find other people who have the same kind of weird, morbid curiosity that I do. 